I'm Dave Rubin and this is The Rubin Report. As long as you're here, don't forget to click that little subscribe button and tap that bell over there so that you actually see our videos. Crazy, I know. All right. Joining me today is the former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, a relentless fighter for freedom and the host of Conversations with John. John Anderson, welcome to The Rubin Report. Glad to be with you, Dave. It really is. I, I am very happy to have you here because I'll start by saying that something that I'd never have told you in person, even though we've met a couple of times, you reached out to me about three years ago, right when we built this studio and the show was taken off. There was a nice little bump in what we were doing. And you reached out to me, or your people reached out to me. And so John Anderson, former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, would like to chat with you. He's coming to LA. And it was really the first time that I thought, whoa, this thing is seriously international, that the conversations that I'm having are seriously important. And we had a great breakfast where we talked about freedom and yeah, we conversation and all of those things. And since we've done a couple events together. Um, so I guess my first question is, you've been in this fight for a long time. When did you start becoming aware that there was something worldwide around having decent conversations that was sort of becoming the new way of going about discourse? Well, I think my, my, my initial sort of concerns around freedom were largely economic. So I was part of uh, a coalition government in Australia from uh, 1996 to 2007, and we were a reforming government. Our emphasis on freedom was economic freedom so that we would not pass on debt burdens and lack of opportunities to young people. And that was my focus. I think for me, it was after the great financial crisis, and you saw the blame game started to really play out and I started to see that we needed to make major adjustments to the way we ran our economies in the West. They're all hopelessly indebted with the exception of a few places like Australia. Um, but we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't own what we'd done and you started to see the shouting become very shrill. Now it hadn't started then but you asked when I started to realise this is a real problem. It was about that point because I started to see that that actually understood properly in democracies, governments downstream of culture, mm -hmm. and so is economics. And the whole um, Lehman Brothers collapse was about a collapse in standards, but again, you didn't have a grappling with what had gone on in terms of the ethics of it, bankers, instead of saying, what should I do? Mm -hmm. How should I behave? Rather, what can I get away with? How can I build a bigger bundle for me uh, and for those around me and hang you know, the people who bank with us and who trust in us and rely on us. I thought, and I started to think, this is getting really serious. But then it was the nature of the debate, because it wasn't a debate anymore. Yeah. Now, you can't get good public policy without a good debate, and you can't have a good debate without a reasonable degree of respect for the other person's dignity and standing. So it's interesting because I was a struggling stand-up when Lehman Brothers crashed and I used to work in a comedy club handing out tickets in Times Square right on the corner. I think it was, it was either 50th or 51st in Broadway. That's where the Lehman Brothers building was and yeah. it was this huge lit up, yeah. you know, massive digital display yeah. building. And I remember when it, when it went down, it seems like another lifetime ago. Yeah. But what's it like to be one of the guys going, hey, everybody. We're, we're about to go off a cliff here. I mean, that's, that's not what politicians want to do. They want to always give everybody all the things that they that's want. That's part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. There is no doubt we need to understand that a lot of this rot started in the 1960s. We gave up talking about, you know, the big sort of uh, uh, meta-narratives, you know, who am I, what am I, where do I fit, how does the world work? It's all too hard. And you can understand that in a way. We've seen horrific wars. We've seen the Great Depression. Let's live 
for us now. Mm -hmm. And in an age of cheap credit, we started to rack up debt right across the Western world. You know, it's not as if I'm singling out one country, your country or my country. We're all into it. <laughs> We've no, all done it. We've yeah. all done it. Yeah. And, and here's the rub. In a democracy, so you can say to Mr. Congressman, um, now listen, I'll give you my vote if you promise me X, Y or Z. And Mr. Congressman might know instinctively if he knows his stuff. You, you wonder how many of them, well, I shouldn't single out American Congressmen. Right, right. But a lot of politicians we'll don't know as much as they should. Yeah. They might, if they were honest, say, look, that is not a good way to do it. We can't afford it. It'll come against your children and your grandchildren. Unfunded liabilities, it turned out to be a nightmare. But we've said, no, no, you don't get out of that. All right, I'll give it to you, because it's on the never, never. And kings from of old have known that until the credit runs out, you can live pretty well. But when the credit does run out, it's a very different story. So it really, I think it has its genesis in the 60s and this idea that it's all about me. Um, I will do what I like with my life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We abandoned the golden rule do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It's all about me. Now, of course, most people don't live like that, but that became the sort of prevailing ethos. Right, we would never live like that in our own lives, right? I mean, sometimes you do. Most of us have been in debt at some point or racked mm. up too much credit card stuff or whatever it is, mm. but you would never just, well, you can't. I mean, that's the thing, as, a, as an individual, you can't keep just getting more credit mm. as you keep not paying things. But somehow in governments, we seem to be able to do that. Well, I, I think that, you know, it takes two to tango. I think the electorate, the voters, if you like, have demanded too much. Mm -hmm. But politicians who should have known better right across the West have not been prudent enough either. And there's an old fashioned word called prudence. It was a classic virtue, went along with integrity and courage and all of those other ones. And, and prudence disappeared. And the story of Lehman Brothers in many ways is a disappearance of prudence. Prudence means being sensible, thinking carefully through what will this mean for the community, what will it mean for the, the next generation. See, what the West has really done is rob its children and its grandchildren of the things that we've taken for granted. And, and, and look, I don't know what privilege is because you can adjust it a thousand ways, but as I understand it, I think you and I would both say we're very, very fortunate people. We've, we've, lived, we've grown up in free society. We've never really wanted um, uh, and, and so forth. But those things should never be taken for granted. Do you see a direct connection then between a stop, no longer asking the big questions in the 60s, to then directly to, well, politicians then just say, here's more, here's more, here's more, here's yes. more, because, because the people no yeah. longer have the tools to understand why that's yes. actually not good. That actually really explains what's happening here in America, I think. Yeah. Well, I do think that. I really do think that. I think we are paying a terrible price, is my personal view, for washing out you see, I think for a long time, I, I don't think, in particularly in my country, it was ever particularly religious, but there was an idea that, broadly speaking, the Christian view of the world, love your neighbour, you're accountable to a higher authority, you may dislike your neighbour, but they still have value and worth and dignity, and I have to respect that. Broadly seen as true. Then it just became seen as one of many truths. Now, of course, we know there's open hostility to uh, traditional uh, underlying beliefs in the West on the part of I don't know what you call them. Do you call them a lot of the intelligentsia or the politically correct or the people who have the microphones or the elites, whatever word you want to use. There's enormous hostility there that says, this stuff's dangerous and you shouldn't expose your children to it. But what's the substitute? What are we putting up instead? The idea of radical autonomy? I, I, my, I, I will hazard a guess that you would understand exactly what I mean if I said to you, I don't think you ever find yourself in yourself. You mm -hmm. actually find yourself by relating to and serving others and, and being considerate and in looking to see where you can make a difference. 
not just for yourself all the time. Self-centeredness just destroys. Well, that's the, I guess, real irony of the situation. As we've removed some of these traditional beliefs, we've replaced them with authoritarian movements. They don't seem to be replaced by freer movements. If there was something so wrong with them, you would think, all right, well then freedom will replace them. But no, it seems to always go the other way. Well, very much so. I mean, I'm a great believer in the, in the freedoms. I don't think you can ever un unbundle them. We've had a debate in Australia, what's the first freedom? And people say, well, it's, obviously it's freedom of speech, they say, because that's the one by which you defend all the other freedoms. But I think I want to join with Frank Ferruti. Now, and, and, and that's an interesting story in itself. I would be seen as, broadly speaking, classic liberal stroke conservative. He would not, you know, he was a student radical in the 60s wonderful and delightful man. If you've not had him on, no, I haven't. you should get him, Frank Ferruti, Kent University. Uh, but he would say, if I said to him, I did, I said to him, do you think freedom of speech is the first freedom? He said, no, 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 no. He said, you should understand with your Christian convictions that actually it was freedom of conscience. Mm -hmm. Our forebears were burning one another at the stake. It made a dreadful, cruel, appalling thing to do to another human being because they had a minority view. And after a while, people sort of said, well, this isn't very consistent with Christian charity <laughs> uh, and it's pretty barbaric and it's stupid because the person with a minority view today that we burn at the stake may in fact be part of a movement that tomorrow do is you in the majority. Do you sense that sort of where we're I heading think, right now? That's where I'm going. Yeah. It really worries me. There's, a, there's an aura of triumphalism. I think Douglas Murray's thesis is right. You've had a whole series of movements to correct things that have needed correcting in the West. And by the way, what system delivers the ability to peacefully correct things that are wrong better than liberal participatory democracy? Mm -hmm. And you think of the civil rights movement and that incredible speech. I look forward to the day when my children are judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. So all of these movements, you know, uh, I mean, I have three daughters. Uh, uh, it's incredibly important to me that they're paid properly for their work or whatever it happens to be. As Douglas Murray says, you know, that train has moved with a lot of cabooses uh, in its carriage onto the platform. It's starting to slow down. We've made tremendous progress. If you like, in Martin Luther's language, those who have been marginalised and sidelined have been allowed to join the citizenry. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the train, the governors let go. And just when you're getting close to the station, it's taken off. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually people just brush it off or blame themselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo, or they avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it's easy to talk about it. With a real doctor who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The doctor will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Ruben to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com dot com slash Ruben for a free visit to get started. Get Roman dot com slash Ruben. And now back to the show. 
So how do you untether people from that then, right? So, so I, I've heard Douglas talk about this, I've, I've discussed it with him, but how do you then untether people from the, the idea that they're still oppressed when they're no longer oppressed, if oppression can be used to control people? That's a pretty addicting feeling right there. Well, uh, this is the great problem, I think, of victimhood politics. Now, a, way, a good friend of mine from the left in Australia, a very noble, old, classic um, uh, sort of Australian socialist, uh, and I've always regarded him as a man of, of noble intent. And he said, you know, look, we were about in the labour movement universalism. So if someone was oppressed or sidelined or not being looked after properly, the idea was to elevate their status so that they were part of the citizenry. That's what Martin Luther King was trying to do in this country. But now we've created a new caste system, a new aristocracy. So a victim, often self-proclaimed, will say, I've got all of these grievances and I'm owed and I need those addressed. And society's left saying, well, if we say sorry and try and meet them, I hope you'll appreciate it, but no, they'll say, we were owed. Mm -hmm. If you don't, then you confirm their victimhood and you're a hater or a racist or a whatever. But here's the rub. If your power comes from being a victim, you have every interest in ensuring that your victimhood is never addressed, that you remain a victim. And that's why you can't untether it from that train. Well, I actually, can I say to you, I think this is proving to be such an unsatisfactory philosophy for people who find themselves, you know, the rush for a university student, oh, I'm a victim, I'm owed. But as I think it through, I think, and, and you and I have seen this, I think there's a lot of people realising that's not very sustaining. And in the end, I don't want to be a victim. I want to be a full member of uh, the community, and I want to pull my weight. And we've got to play to the better angels. Isn't it funny that we know in, in real life, when you're around friends or family, people that you socialize with, nobody wants to be around a victim. Nobody wants to be around someone <laughs> endlessly complaining all the time. You want to be around people that, that impress you, that inspire you, that make you laugh, that have joy in the world, that can share something good with you. And yet somehow a movement has been created that somehow seems sexy yeah. based on something that is so anti how any of us, if we really thought about our lives, would ever really want to be. Hey, let's, let's be clear, and I think you and I would agree on this, there are people who have very legitimate grievances. Absolutely. The people Absolutely. Martin Luther King was talking about, if I can say this in your country as somebody who's not American, I mean, th th those grievances were deep and real and raw and horrible. For anybody who's studied Jimmy Crow and what happened, and then it's extraordinary. I hope you don't mind me saying that in no, your country. No, of course. Well, you're, you're saying you're saying you true. stay there? I mean, the whole point is to lift yourself out of it and join the rest of the community. I mean, the great, again, they're hackneyed to death. I know everybody talks about it, but Kennedy asked not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We've reversed it. We've reversed the idea of citizenship. So now we say, I demand my country meet my needs. But as you say, you don't want to stay there. One of the most remarkable men in Australia, he's just retired, he's a very old man now, uh, was the man Frank Lowy behind... Um, uh, Westfield, I see them even here in America, shopping centres. Huh. Um, yeah, we've got one right here. Now, his whole family, he escaped the Holocaust, but his family was wiped out. He was a little boy one day, uh, watched his father go off to work and he never came back. And he talks about how he sat in the window day after day after day, sat by the window waiting for Dad to come home. Dad never did. Jeez. And the whole Holocaust thing. And that was appalling. I mean, how any human being could do what the Nazis did to other human beings is beyond my comprehension. But if a man like that had spent the rest of his life saying, I am a victim, I'm owed, fix up my victimhood. Now, I feel deeply for what he went through, but I respect him hugely 
for saying, I'm not going to play the victim card. And he's gone out and created jobs for goodness only knows how many Australians. I see shopping centres here in America and so yeah. It's been a success story. And we can sympathise with what he went through, but we can delight in the fact that he has chosen to be a positive, forward-looking person and, if you like, has confronted those demons by rising above them and denying them oxygen, if I can put it that way. Yeah, so that's, uh, before we go too far down the political rabbit hole, because I can sense where the richness of this conversation is, I just want to talk about your story a little bit. You, you come from a sixth-generation farming family yeah. and somehow went into politics. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit of that? Uh, yeah, Scottish ancestry, which is very common in rural Australia. And in rural Australia, farming and grazing was the way to go. Um, it's a rough country to farm in because of the unreliable climate. Scots were very good at it because they, you know, Scott in this poor land and a rough climate. Uh, and so, you know, my family's had, I regard, if, if I've done one brilliant thing, I chose my parents well, they were struggling. <laughs> um, good move, good move. And, uh, you know, the, the thing is that, um, uh, so I've, I've been very fortunate. I've seen them go through terrible ups and downs. My family was decimated by both the First and the Second World War because Australia was deeply integrated in both. Double the number of Australians died in the First World Wars did Americans. Hmm. It's extraordinary the level of engagement in international affairs that Australia's uh, taken up, even when it was very young. But yeah, I, I, um, I went to school and university in Sydney and had never contemplated a political career, although I was always fascinated by the great debates. I've always seen our society as a result of fierce debates that are not personalised at their best. You know? we're, we're the result of the clash of great ideas. Look at the debates that went into the uh, independence of America. The thinking, the depth of understanding, the belief in the worth and dignity of all, which is where your freedom motive, my belief, comes from in this country. Um, but I was literally headhunted by a retiring federal member at the precocious age of 27. <laughs> He said, I'm going to retire and I think you should have a go in my place. And I said, what at, sir? And, uh, what did he see in you? If you were coming from a farming family, what did he know about you that he thought this guy could do it? Well, it's an interesting question in a way that I can answer it honestly. Uh, I'd been at a public meeting where he'd said something about, he was from you know, the conservative side of politics, he'd said something about the left side of politics, and I thought he'd completely missed the point. So I stood up and remonstrated firmly, but not personally. And he actually said to me, I think you should have a go because you said something, I said something you disagreed with and you took it up in a good humoured but effective hmm. way without attacking me. That's what he actually said to me. So, uh, And that's basically what your guiding principle has been throughout politics and now even out of politics. I mean, you're having conversations. Jordan and I sat down with you uh, for your show, which was in front of a live group of people and it was exactly this. It was exactly, let's, let's work through this stuff instead of you know, breaking each other's backs. Hey everybody, this is just a quick reminder to let you guys know that the Ruben Report community, which is the first project of my new tech company, Locals.com, is now available. You can sign up at RubenReport.com or you can download the mobile app on the Apple App Store or on Google Play. We've got ad-free video, ad-free podcast. There's a full feed. You can communicate with me and with other fans. And this is just the beginning. We're going to be rolling out these communities to all sorts of other people. You can sign up, pay what you want. 
it's troll free, it's bot free, and I really do believe that small is the new big and these types of communities are going to be the future of the internet. So if you're sick of the YouTube comment section, you're sick of all the Twitter fighting and the rest of it, join a great community we've built out. I think you're going to really dig what we're doing over there. And that's really your best access to me and the people who care about the ideas that you care about as well. So I hope to see you there. That's Ruben Report. Dot com, or you can download the Ruben Report community app on the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Well, I've just always deeply, deeply believed, and it, it, it stems from my, my Christian belief, that, I, that I'm not, it's not for me to judge others. It is for me to engage in the contest of ideas, and I ought to believe passionately uh, in, in, a, in a vigorous debate. You know, our parliament in Australia is very adversarial. Mm-hmm. And people often complain about it. And I say, look, let's split this into its two components. You actually want your parliamentarians to believe in things deeply. And there ought to be a great clash over people's versions of how best to take the place forward. What you're really objecting to, I hope, (laughs) is not that clash of ideas, but when it's personalised, Mm -hmm. when people give or take offence. I've just never seen the point of it. I've never seen that it's taken anybody anywhere. Do, do you sense that one side of the aisle is is better at that than another? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so really do, sorry. Do you think there's this. a reason for that? Like a deep reason for that? Yeah, I do. I think Douglas Murray may have tapped it again as well. Uh, and I think it's getting worse, not better. Um, a very clear thinking person from the left said to me quite recently, he said, I was quite deep into my life before I realised conservatives could be nice people. He said, I'm from the left, and he just looked me straight in the eye and he said, John, understand there's a fair bit of truth in the old saying that the right thinks the left is misguided, but the left thinks the right is evil. Dennis Prager, I quote it constantly. Actually, it wasn't him yeah. who said it, that to It me. wasn't? No, it wasn't. I've been, quoting, I've been quoting his quote forever. Who? No? Yeah. No, I, I mean... Oh, someone else that said it, it was, to you. And he I, may have been I, reflecting oh. what Dennis said. I don't okay, know, okay. but I hadn't heard that connection. Yeah. Now, there's another person. And he said it to me. And then I think, you look at David Goodhart's work uh, on, on um, Brexit. Mm-hmm. He brings that out again. He says that families from the left uh, uh, you know, will do almost anything to stop their children relating to and marrying somebody from the other side of politics, whereas someone from the conservative end tends to be quite relaxed and accepting of somebody of different views. And here's where I think, and I don't want to misrepresent him, but I think Douglas Murray makes the point that in the current context, the lack of logic and intellectual sort of underpinning for the positioning that much of the left now adopts on issues means that they have to demonise others rather than get into a debate about them. Well, it's pretty easy if you can just say they're a Nazi. Yeah. Well, well, it's a lot easier than going into the philosophical underpinnings of what you think. Isn't that fascinating the way people bandy the word fascism around? Now, I've studied enough at university. I'm, I'm not a bright bear. I don't pretend to be. As I said, the only really smart thing I did was choose Australian parents. But... but <laughs> I do know what a fascist is, and I do know its origins and its underpinnings. And so the left pin this table, fasci- label of fascism, on people in a way that reflects that they're not interested at all in any exactitude in language. In fact, I would say ambivalence in language has emerged as the postmodernist's best friend. It's becoming very hard to have a debate, not only because of the labels that are bandied around, but the way in which words no longer mean what they should mean. So our national broadcaster never stops talking about the importance of diversity. The trouble is they don't believe in it. Mm-hmm. So they'll make sure that, yes, if you go there, they've got 
you know, every gender imagine. How many are there? Well, it depends what time it is. I'll yeah. check. I'll check. <laughs> and if they haven't found one to fit, I don't want to be flippant about. And I shouldn't be flippant, but in all honesty, you'll find what you will find is that, that diversity means anything except difference in perspectives, mm -hmm. in political perspectives. So diversity, what does it really mean now? And, and this is a great problem. Very hard to debate when not only is language used to demonise others, it's used to confuse the argument and to make sure you're not able to talk on the, on a level platform. So I know we could probably spend all day, you know, talking about the, the frustrations that, say, classical liberals or conservatives have with well, leftism. We're, we're and, falling into the trap of the right. great fun of reinforcing one another's problems. I know. So, so exactly. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us out of that. Watch, watch what I'm going to do here. Watch the move. The move is, well, then what, what can conservatives, say Christian conservatives or classical liberals, people that are more liberty-minded in general, what can they do right now to make sure that they don't lose those ideals? Because, because we are agreed that we are facing something that is, mm. that is pretty bad. And, and, it's pretty, and it's not really rooted in, in reality or a consistent uh, philosophical outlook. So I think there's a tendency sometimes to, to go to our worst side too, yes. to fight that. Oh, there is. And, and what, what do you yeah. think we can do, maybe from a religious perspective, you could give me an answer on that. Uh, look, I think, I think the first thing I'd say is that we need to practice what we preach in the sense that we shouldn't demonise others. Demonise the ideas, that's different. I think we should probably try and see civility as not just meaning, you know, Dave and John talk politely and I don't criticise the way you hold your knife and fork when you eat. <laughs> At least not publicly. Not publicly. <laughs> um, but it means much more. That's than not that. a knife. <laughs> I, it was going to get in here somehow, one way or another. Uh, yeah, I should tell you one of uh, Come back to that. We, we'll get to that. I've got several Crocodile Dundee questions here, don't worry. <laughs> um, uh, I think we need to see civility actually uh, as a tough minded virtue. That says, picking up on the old um, Evelyn Beatrice Hall idea, uh, that I may disagree with you, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. It implies two things. I'll respect you enough to say it. You have a right to put your ideas on the table, and then the ideas are the issue because that's where we'll get the best way forward. It's not for me to demonise you. I don't like your ideas, but absolutely you've got the right to put them on the table. Let's thrash those out. Now, it's an unequal playing ground because that's not the way the game's being played mm -hmm. at the moment, but I don't see any option. And even people like Gandhi sort of kind of got that, didn't he? I mean, it's about forgiveness. That's something that's washing out of our culture. Uh, the, you know, I don't know how relationships ever work if we can't forgive. And I think we have to be prepared to practice that and mm -hmm. say, look, it's okay, I'm sorry, I was offended, but that doesn't matter, let's move on, rather than this perpetual, I will carry the offence to the grave. Mm -hmm. And that's the other great problem we've got in our culture, because even if you can try and forgive now, you can't forget because social media's stored up absolutely everything. So that's also the interesting part, is that the asymmetry of the rules, I think, is what's becoming harder and harder for conservatives. So, for example, Justin Trudeau can show up in blackface. I don't think most people think he's a true racist by any stretch. He did something stupid. It was, you know, times change, all of those things. You know, we've had the governor here, Ralph Northam, also, you know, blackface 30 years ago, but he's a Democrat. And the point is that they're both still in power. While we know if these were conservatives or That's Republicans right. or whatever, they would yeah. be destroyed. They would and be. then, so I then because really of that, example. well, because of that, then we see the conservatives going, no, we have to destroy them too. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the impulse that you're saying, no, we have to fight that yeah. impulse. Yeah, I, I believe that's right. I mean, I think there the, uh, the point would be to go to the, 
frankly, the hypocrisy of it and highlight that. But to try and avoid doing, you know, the triumphalism. Remember the lessons when we stop burning one another at the stake. At the heart of this unique model of Western harmony where we learnt to live with one another's deepest differences was a willingness to respect another person's conscience and let them live truly to that conscience as long as they are not damaging other people. And I don't mean by that occasionally offending people. This idea that you can't give offence, that is, that is a way to shut down debate if ever there was. And, you know, um, if I'm honest about my life, the times in which I've grown have been the times when I've been grossly offended because somebody else has told me something about me I haven't wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah. And I've had to grow out of it. You know, um, that, um, Jonathan Haidt makes that point. You know, we tell our kids, we bring them up to believe um, that um, uh, what doesn't kill you will make you weaker. He says, actually, it, we need to build resilience. And when we get the setbacks, we've got to learn from them and not just be like a plastic cup that you drop on the floor and recovers its shape. We actually need to be people, when we've had a setback, who grow, he calls it anti-fragility. And our parents and grandparents believed that. And look at what the great generation, as you call them in this country, went through. So is that just all then a function of our success? That our parents, you're right, Good our point. parents are, and grandparents went through it, grandparents particularly, at least yeah. in an American context. And because of that, because of that grit and fight, that then they sort of got us to unprecedented wealth, a growing middle class in the United States. And what happened? Well, we got participation trophies. Yeah, I think you may be right. And maybe it took, I mean, I grew up with a father who had a horrendous Second World War. Uh, and I was born quite late in his life. Uh, and so I always lived with a man who'd seen war, he'd volunteered, hated it, you know, could never talk of it, was almost killed in the campaign against Rommel um, in the Western Desert. And that's shaped me. But then I'm conscious that I had a desire with my four children to want to snowplow for them. The tendency was there. I wanted to remove every obstacle in a way that my father didn't try for me. He knew instinctively that a few challenges were a good thing for me. And I knew that too, but I had to pull myself back because mm -hmm. the instinct all the time was to make it soft and easy. And I think Jonathan Haidt's right. It doesn't work. And he goes on to say that we then encourage our children to trust their feelings. Your feelings are always right. We know that's not right. You have to think things through. Your feelings must accord with reality. It's just dangerous to feel something. Sort of, I feel that water would be nice and that the signs saying that there are sharks in there shouldn't get in the way of me having a good swim. You know? Uh, and then the other one, this problem that goes to the heart of what we're talking about, we teach our children that the dividing line between good and bad is between people, or that life is a battle between good and bad people. That's a disaster. It's a disaster. Hey, Ruben Report podcast listeners, just a quick reminder that my first book, Don't Burn This Book, Free Thinking in an Age of Unreason, is now available for pre-order. In it, I show you guys how to navigate a world of outrage mobs, political polarization, and online censorship without totally losing your mind. Oh, and that Jordan Peterson guy is writing the forward, not bad. Pre-order your copy now on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, or go to don'tburnthisbook.com and order yours today. Yeah, most people on the other side believe that they're good too. They may be wrong. Well, not only that, we're all a mixture. Yeah. And why can't we go on a journey? You write quite a bit about how you've been on a journey politically. Yeah. Well, isn't that a good thing? You know, to think things through and to learn from your mistakes. Um, 
forgive me, it's not for me to say that you made mistakes or whatever, but I know I have. I have absolutely made mistakes, I promise you. Yeah, yeah. but you're not allowed to now in the lexicon of yeah. those who hold the microphones in our society. And you see that with social media. Yeah. The thing we were talking about earlier, you make a mistake and it's brought up against you 30 years later to keep you out of public office, when you might have grown enormously as a human being. And you might have asked those that you hurt or that you've misjudged or whatever mistakes you made for forgiveness. You've grown enormously and you've come to a different place. Why should we not respect that? Do you think oddly though that the end of secularism leads us to that place of unforgiveness? Do you think that is sort of what you were talking about earlier, that if you remove all of whatever traditional belief there is, that you will end up in a place that will be so subjective that how would forgiveness even make sense in that world? That sort of seems to me where we're well, you're sort of power. at at the moment, yeah. I mean, this is a great thing now, it's all about power. Everyone talks about power, but <clears throat> it's, it's very inadequate. Douglas Murray says this. If you walk up to most people in the street and say, what most matters to you most, they won't say power. They'll talk about love, they'll talk about relationship and so forth. But I think relationship in the Western model draws an enormous amount from our understanding of that thing called the cross. And the, the central message there was a death, um, a life surrendered uh, for enemies out of love loving your enemies. We can't even love our friends <laughs> half the time. Yeah. We need to learn to love our enemies again, which is why I think I'm all for vigor in debate. I love what you do. I love what Jordan Peterson does. I love what, so, I mean, this is a big part of the picture. You've got enormous uh, intellectual vigor coming back into Western life. And that's tremendously encouraging. And it's an enormous privilege just to play a tiny little bit, you know, I hope in facilitating that with my own website, for example, and so forth. But I see this as tremendously encouraging. But we've got to break the very model that's brought us to us in the first, brought us to that place in the first place, which is the rejection of the idea of the respect and, and <coughs> recognition of the worth and dignity of others. Are, are you amazed how this is a truly worldwide phenomena right now? So that's why I started the interview by saying that, you know, mm. you sent me this email yes. th three years ago and then, mm. you know, flash forward basically uh, two and a half years and I'm in Australia and I'm doing this event with you and everyone in that room knew who I was. Yep. And now most of them were there for Jordan. I concede that point. <laughs> but the basic idea that what we're talking about in America is the same thing you're talking about in Australia. It's yep. the same thing they're talking about France. They're That's talking right. about it in Mexico. Yep. It's not purely a, a Western yep. society idea anymore. It's everywhere now. It is, it is indeed. Uh, and a couple of observations. Uh, the wealthiest countries in particular, where it's been very easy for a long time, have lost sight, I think, of the idea of suffering. And suffering can be very instrumental in determining character and resilience uh, and compassion for others because you understand. We've got rid of the idea that suffering um, you know, is part of life. We try to pretend we can build perfect society, which is why people make unreal demands on government. Mm -hmm. you know, we don't need God anymore, none of that stuff. We don't need suffering anymore. So, Mr. Congressman, I expect you to solve every ill. Give me everything. Give me everything. And Mr. Congressman has been unwise enough too often. I, if there's a congressman listening, please say, I could say exactly the same about what I was yeah. in the House of Representatives <laughs> or a senator in Australia. We have senators just like you do. Uh, we have a Washminster 
uh, House of Representatives based on the British House of Commons. Our Senate is modelled exactly on your Senate, so we call it a Washington system. Ah. Um, and we, we've just got to break that cycle again and rediscover some roots. Or, or this is the one. You know, conservative doesn't believe that the people who have gone before them were lesser. But our culture now seems to think that those who went before us have nothing to teach us. That is a fatal flaw. Mm -hmm. I've just been reading a remarkable story about Alexander Hamilton, you know, one of the founding fathers who doesn't get a lot of recognition because he died early in a duel. And he was a, a mixed grill of a man. He was a noble, highly intelligent, imbued with what might be called Christian principles, who, because of his cleverness, I think, became vain and got into silly disputes because of his vanity and he died in a, in a duel. But you read his writings and what have you, as he played his part, the Federalist Papers and so forth, in establishing the land of the free, it's brilliant mm -hmm. stuff. And to dismiss the wisdom of the ages because somehow we're cleverer and they were lesser, no conservative should ever, ever, ever adopt that line. The wisdom we can learn from those, we're mad to reject it. It, so it's also rediscover a lot of it. It also strikes me as deeply um, personally flawed. So you asked me this when we were in Australia, but I, I've in the last year, I'd say I'm having a bit of a religious awakening, or at least a, a spiritual awakening, or a, a, oh, an awakening, let's say, about belief in general, the importance of belief, because the idea that somehow I know something so much better or more. Uh, wittingly than than my parents or my grandparents or my great-grandparents all these people who lived through so much more than I've mm. lived through but somehow I figured it out and it has something to do with all of our technology and everything else it's actually absurd yeah. it, it's an erasure of the people before you mm. and it's a it feels very weak and thin to me well I'm Terrific. <laughs> I, guess that, I guess that wasn't a question. You're happy with, you're happy with my own answer there. We'll, we'll discuss that on your podcast. How about that? All right. How about let's shift a little bit altogether. Can you just talk a little bit about what the, an American watching this should know about Australia that we have no idea? We, you know, there's sort of this idea. There's a, okay, we know Crocodile Dundee. We know boomerangs and, and kangaroos and koalas. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Um, I absolutely, for the 10 or so days that I was there, I loved every second, every moment I was there, I thought the people were absolutely joyful and fun and interesting. Now I know I'm traveling in certain circles where I'm gonna meet a certain type of person, but people that were coming up to me everywhere and, and, and the weather was great and, and just the events we did were fantastic. Um, but what do we not know about Australia? Besides, you're, you're a big landlocked country. Yeah, big. And there's, and there's kangaroos running down the highways. Well, it depends which highway. Well, we were, we were, when we were going from Canberra to, Canberra to Sydney. Uh, to Sydney yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. You would. Uh, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because sometimes Americans, I think, probably don't know a lot about Australians. No, I, I truly don't think we do. I got uh, lost in the middle of your country once. You were talking about knives. This is a true story. Yeah. And I had a little rented cart which, I, which had Missouri plates on it, but I was in Kansas. I was looking for a good friend of mine who lives right in the middle of Kansas. I got lost a Sunday afternoon. Pulled up outside a little weatherboard house, timber house. And there's a lady there with a pet raccoon on her shoulder. She literally, <laughs> a pet raccoon, standing outside. Welcome to America. And, and three children. Yeah. So a girl about 15, and a boy about 12, and a younger lad. And I pulled up, and I was frustrated. I, you know, I don't know about you, but I can't, I, when I get lost, yeah. and it's pre-mobile phone days, this is in the mid-90s, I wind down the window of this little car, and I say, excuse me, ma'am, I've got myself lost. Can you show me where I am on this map? Well, the boy, he's about 12, he looks straight up at his mother and he says, hey, mama, this dude talks just like Crocodile Dundee. 
Well, she grabbed those kids like a hen gathering her chicks and pulled them back out of danger's way, as if to say, you know, he might have a knife. He was the good guy in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and she pulls them around the front of the car. You say, one eye on me. The other one, I think, she's going to look at her license plates. Well, she sees them. And all the tension goes out of her body. And she <laughs> says to the kids, it's all right, you can relax. He's not from... He, he, he's not from Australia, he's from Missouri. <laughs> That's a straight Missouri accent yeah. he's got. <laughs> and then she said, yeah, I, I said, uh, actually, your boy's right, I am from Australia. And she said, did you drive here? That's hilarious. Yeah, it's a true story. I got to tell George Bush that, and he laughed his head off. <laughs> anyway. Um, That's a hell of a drive, because that flight ain't easy. So, you know, yeah, come on. Right. the drive's really going to be... <laughs> that's right, it took a while. The drive's really going to be pushing it. Um, but, but what should we know about Australia? Well, really? Australia was settled after America became independent. And the traditional wisdom is that the Brits were looking for a new place to dump their prisoners. In fact, it was nowhere near as simple as that. They knew there was a big land down there that wanted to put their flag on it before the French or the Spanish or the Russians, etc., etc., etc. And uh, it... Uh, same size as continental USA. Um, it was a prison settlement. Interestingly, uh, the convicts were, of course, were pretty wild. And all sorts of enlightenment and Christian thinking went into, how can we turn these people around? How can we rehabilitate them? There were those who didn't want to. They wanted to treat them like slaves. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, the sailing order said no slaves in the new colony, one of the first places in the world, hmm. when slavery was still legal right throughout the British Empire um, and in America. It was banned in the new colony huh. from day one. Um, and then there were those. Was there, who, was there a big fight about that? There, there must no, have I don't been. think so. It was very really? quiet. Yeah, there wasn't. And oh. then there were those who wanted to see it as a place of rehabilitation and very sensitive issue, but arguments too about could we bring enlightenment and education and salvation to the Aboriginal people? And of course, that became very vexed because we have our own great difficulties in that area, as yeah. you do with I, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the amazing thing was that an incredible effort was putting into encouraging those convicts to marry. And many of them had illegitimate children, regularise their arrangements. And what emerged was, was known as the, they were known as the currency lads and lasses. The first generation of Australians born on Australian soil turned out to be model citizens. And in some ways, with some parallels with your country, they built a nation. Now, it's only 6 or 7% of Australian agricultural land is high quality, for example. A lot of it's desert. So that's the same size as continental USA. Mm -hmm. It's nowhere near as productive, although we're very resource rich, on the other hand. So it's still only 26 million people, much smaller than America. That's smaller than California, for heaven's sake. Yeah. But it's one of the so-called Five Eyes countries, America, Britain, uh, Canada, New Zealand and Australia. They share everything. There's enormous trust. Their democracies. Traditionally, we'd look to Britain until 1941, Pearl Harbour. Australia was in, you know, the direct line of fire, so to speak, uh, and an unashamed pivot was made to seeing America as the sort of senior friend to whom we would relate. Uh, and funnily enough, my mother married during the war an American serviceman and lived in America for a while. Hmm. Uh, it was one of those marriage marriages born of war that didn't work out. She went back and married my father, who'd been her real childhood sweetheart, apparently. Um, so I do have some connections with the place. Our own home was modelled on a house that she lived in and loved in America. Wow. Yeah. A little, huh. little bit of a linkage there. Yeah. Uh, I think the bonds are quite close. Uh, the left in Australia demonises um, the Republican movement in, Australia, in America and I think misunderstands the nature of the alliance. 
but I think in the current context, Australians look on with concern with the way the world is going and recognise the importance of America's strength. I certainly do. We are uh, very committed to the alliance. What, do you sense that there's something different in terms of, you know, we've been talking about the left a lot here. I spoke to at several classical liberal organizations in Australia. I sense that liberalism in and of itself was still kind of strong in Australia. Now it's a self-selected group of people, yeah. I guess, that I spoke to. Um, See, so so am I, no, 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 I know. Yeah. So, right, you probably come here and, and yeah. feel the same thing and go, whoa, yeah. it's not nearly as bad, yeah. but it depends who's inviting you. It does. Um, Am I completely off in that? No, not completely, I don't think. But I think it's a bit like your country. Uh, when I look at America, and, and you know, I, I, I love this country and I love its can-do attitude. And funnily enough, when I was a constituent, uh, I had about 60 expat Americans who lived right in the middle of my area and they'd bought the cotton industry from the west coast of America to Australia. And they were terrific citizens. I, I loved their can-do attitude. You know, they'd have a go. Whereas Australians can have a little bit of the old British... Uh, you know, the world is miserable. We're out of living and the government should sort it out. These Americans, I learned a lot from them, just hmm. about a positive attitude and having a go. Because they were, I suppose, they were greatest generation products, really. Uh, it's very important to understand that Australia didn't fight for freedom. It was given to us. Now, a lot of Australians would say, what the heck are you talking about, John? Think about our past. You know, we had to forge a life in a difficult... All of that is true. And Australians have fought hard to defend freedom. But our democratic traditions and the institutions of freedom were, you know, really bequeathed to us by the British with a fair bit of input from America. So when the Australian Constitution was being written, we had the best received wisdom from what I would say was a great Protestant stream of thinking, uh, filtering through the best of the Enlightenment. And the Australian Constitution proven to be a very robust um, document that secured our freedoms. We don't have that same strength of commitment that's still in this country in certain strands of your public life that's richly endowed with the, the deep commitment to freedom that came out of the, the independence struggles. Because it was, as I say, we largely inherited it. We were very fortunate in that regard. We'd been prepared to defend it. We didn't have to fight to get it in the first, first place. This is particularly evident in our universities where there's a remarkable lack of commitment to the Western canon to understanding of our culture. Here you still have great uh, liberal arts schools. It, um, it's, it's starting to teter here too, for sure. We, we have, we have major, pro yeah. So it's there in Australia, but it's not as strong. However, the, the public debate has become much more engaged and vigorous in recent times. And the recent election in Australia was a very, very, very clear cut. The, the uh, coalition, which is a, a sort of centre-right grouping, was mm -hmm. not expected to win. They've mm -hmm. been in a bit of chaos. They'd chosen a new leader. The Australians were sick of the revolving door leadership stuff. But they decided this leader actually represents the Australia that we still have a great attachment to. And I think in a way, that last election two or three months ago was a giant hit the pause button. It wasn't just about the two parties' economic policies, important as they were. Uh, it was... Also, Australians saying, we're getting a bit sick of being told what we can say and therefore what we can think. This stuff's getting out of hand and the other side's too keen on it for our liking.
So are you enthused then that obviously the election basically went in a direction that you wanted to, but that, that, that's seemingly also happening in other parts of Europe yes. now. There's been a couple surprise elections lately, and even if you were to look at the, the yes. Canadian election, which is obviously not Europe, although Trudeau won, it's gonna be a minority government. Yeah. So there is something when people are looking for hope. That's, that's one of the questions I get the most. It's like I have all these conversations and people go, all right, Dave, we can start understanding the ideas now, we can have these conversations a little bit better, but where's the hope? But the hope is that there are, there have been in the last two or three years, a couple elections that have been sort of center-right, sort of sensible government. Well, I think that's right. And um, the other thing, you, I, I think the great danger there, though, is particularly in Europe. Uh, I think, uh, and I don't want to sound anti-environmentalism, but I think what's happened with the environment movement is it's moved from the scientists uh, and from academia and from solid policy thinking into the era of, era of emotion and populism itself. And so you'll see knee-jerk reactions, which may, instead of helpfully decarbonising the economy in Europe, will de-industrialise it, and that with their levels of indebtedness and so forth, I'm not sure that's going to be very helpful. I mean, the issue, if you're worried about climate, remains, frankly, India and China. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at the clean-up here... Right, no matter what Europe, we do to clean up here. <clears throat> it's never enough. <laughs> no, that's right. And you've made enormous progress. Your emissions per head are really, you know, it's quite a remarkable story. It doesn't get much credit. But as I understand it, it's quite a story. To turn it back uh, and, and ask you a question of this, you've been to Australia, you were with Jordan Peterson. You must, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there are a lot of young people turning out. They seem to be saying the empathy culture doesn't really offer us what it promised. There has to be a better way. Was that your... My, my, my main take was that people were desperate, and this, this was worldwide, I definitely saw this in Australia, but everywhere that we went, in Europe, in the States, in Canada, I saw the same thing, which was people desperately wanted to think about their lives seriously. That, yeah. that was the overriding yeah. theme. So even the way, I mean, I always reference this, but I was amazed, it took me a couple shows to realize it, but suddenly I started going, the amount of people, the way they dress at these shows, they're kind of dressed like us, most of them, young guys. And I've told the story about how when I was in Sweden, I was at H&M, yep. uh, and I was buying just a baseball cap, and I'm standing online, and the guy in front of me is telling the cashier he's buying his first suit because he's going to see Jordan Peterson tonight. And then the cashier says, I'm going to see Jordan Peterson tonight. And then he looked at me, and he goes, you're Dave. And it was like, this is crazy. Yeah. I'm on the street in Stockholm, yeah. you know, I'm just at a store in Stockholm, mm. and here are young people, these guys were 22, 23, that all they wanted was to just, I mean, to, to quote the book right there, they just wanted to get out of the chaos. So that, that was the overriding theme that I felt. I think there's an element too, a lot of young people feel rightly, I have to say, insulted by the modern debate. Yeah. That's, that divides them into victims and oppressors, victims and victim makers. It's no, such look, a simplistic way of looking at the world. Look, both you and I could invent a narrative that says we're victims, you know? You've got a cough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> I got in England. Yeah. That's terrible. I've got a bum knee. We're both... <laughs> well, it was, that happened in yeah. Australia. Yeah. Oh, I was running from a kangaroo. Was, <laughs> um, I, actually, I was running from a syphilitic koala. I did not know that the koalas all have syphilis. Yeah, basically. it's very tragic. Yeah. yeah it really is. It's very, yeah. quite a sad story. Chlamydia. Cl oh, is it chlamydia? Mm. That's syphilis. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Same sort of thing. Yeah. Um, both of us could be painted as oppressors. I've done things that are wrong. I know that. But to divide us in that way and to set us at enmity, this incredible desire in the West, it seems now, to set uh, women against men, um, race against race, 
and generation against generation. Mm -hmm. Now we've got this sort of um, uh, despising of uh, adulthood. We've got to listen to the children. Some academic in Britain the other day proffered that children from six on should have the vote because they have wisdom that adults are. Have we taken leave of our senses? Oh. But you see, we're all at war with one another. And I actually think a lot of people are saying, I don't want to be at war with everybody. And I know I'm not always perfect and I've done the wrong thing, but basically I want to be a decent person. And I saw Jordan talk to an audience of a thousand in Chatswood. It's, it's changed my outlook on things a lot. It was enormously encouraging in some ways because there were a heap of young men there. And he was not a, some, you know, he walks onto the stage, they give him a standing ovation. No, he's not a celluloid hero. He's mm. not some, you know, he's not um, uh, a global celebrity in a sporting sense or anything. He's there to say, you're not the people you ought to be. Life can be tough and terrible. Go back to your bedroom, sort yourself out, then go out and be noble. And an empathy culture will, or a victimhood culture, it's not going to solve your problems. And they responded. In other words, he's calling out their better angels at the very time as he's telling them they're not as good. We all need to hear, we are not as good as we think we are, mm. nor are we as bad as we think we are. That's the great irony, isn't it? We're lost in a lack of self-esteem. We're overbloated with pride. We're such complex beings. We've got it all wrong. But here are people looking to say, this isn't good enough, and I want to rebuild relationships. I want to be a responsible citizen. I'm enormously encouraged by that. Do you think some of this is just the nature of the fact that the internet exists? Yeah. I can put this video out and someone in Australia can yes, watch it the same, the same moment yeah, someone yeah. in America can. Yep. And because of that, that that's great obviously yeah. at some level, but yep. the, the, the negative of that yes. is that we're constantly yeah. exporting ideas, good and bad, all yep. the time. We're commenting on everything. You know, Everything's yep. going faster than we can possibly imagine. Yep. We have no idea how this is all affecting us. And so perhaps for the first 20 years, let's say, of the internet, it, it was good, it was bad, it was causing tumult, it was fixing things, it started revolutions, it sort of ended revolutions, I mean, all of that. And now maybe we're sort of, I mean, this would be the hopeful part, is that we're sort of maturing to the point that some of the things you're talking about, it's like, okay, we can have that battle of ideas forever, but now maybe the, the global conversation has to be, how do you, how do you fix all that? I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And, and Neil Ferguson talks about how the greatest parallel for the internet age is probably the printing press. And it resulted in a lot of chaos initially. But in the end, of course, it was responsible for the spreading of wisdom and of learning and of ability uh, to, uh, if you like, share. Uh, that transformed the way that we live. And so this thing called the, you know, social media that in some ways has been so disastrous and I think has unquestionably helped spread the victimhood culture, by the way, not just to wealthy countries, but even to a lot of developing countries. Mm -hmm. and, and, and frankly, you know, here we are on the west coast of America. I think Hollywood's had a bit to do with this. Uh, a, a friend of mine pointed out, look at the two Supermans. The first Superman was your simple, pure childhood dream of the perfect, all-capable, powerful person. The second one, still pretty effective and pretty impressive, but he had issues, uh -huh. you know? He was a victim. Uh -huh. And Huh. That spreads, you see. It goes everywhere. Everybody watches Superman. And so now, to be a Superman, you, you've got to have issues too. And we all have issues, but it's how you deal with them. And so I do think that, yeah, that this turbocharging of um, our ability to take forward our best thinking and highest ideals at the same time as we can take forward the worst 
is very lumpy. Maybe it's encouraging that Mark Zuckerberg has, has now come out and said that uh, he will ensure that his platform does allow for political debate. And I see the Democrats are very upset because they think it gives Trump an advantage. But the fact that Mark Zuckerberg has now seen that free speech is really important for minorities and for the oppressed, he said that as I understand it, and he's right. That surely is a pointer that's encouraging, do you think? I think it's basically encouraging, and my, I mean, you know my feelings on this, I would prefer that the government have nothing to do with tech companies. Uh, you know, like I, we know that there's high level conversations and we know that there's, there's ways that they're tied together that maybe aren't as pure as, as I would like that are just, they just are. Um, but wh where do you fall on that actually? Because when I was watching the congressional hearings where they've been grilling Zuckerberg over and over, I've basically always been against intervening and I would hope that competition and human ingenuity can solve some of these things, and I'm working on some of that myself. Um, but I thought as I was watching AOC and, and some of the more far-left Democrats grill him, I thought the people that are calling for intervention are saying, are, that's, those are the people you want to hand the power to. Yeah. Are you nuts? Yeah. Uh, so, well, so, in a way, so in a way, yeah. they're just outsourcing yeah. their yeah. tyranny yeah. to him. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you exactly what I think. I hope America displays the common sense and the leadership on this that Europe hasn't because all of their emphasis, is, uh, emphasis has been on, all you terrible platform providers, you clean up your act or we will do it for you. Yeah, and, and of course they don't have the protections around speech that we have here. That's right, yeah. a very important point. Everyone forgets that about America. Your defense of free speech is robust, second to none. It's, it's the American motley. So you guys, as great as the Australian Constitution is, there's nothing in the Constitution that it directly enshrines absolute free speech, right? Not in the way that speech, right? does. Yeah. No. It assumes it more than states it, I think would be the way to put it. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's not, and, and there haven't been the amendments in there. Australian people have been very reluctant to amend the constitution, incredibly reluctant. And the mechanism set up to set the high bar quite high as well. So when you and, see these laws, the hate speech laws, and then you see social media crackdowns that happen in Europe, and then sometimes people's Twitter accounts, American people's Twitter accounts get deleted because they're violating a Pakistani blasphemy law or something. How worried are you that some of that could, uh, you know, get over the ocean and get to you guys? Well, it's always a concern. But to come back to the essential point, my great hope is that America calls this right. Now, the, see, the problem and where you get caught, of course, is that we do expect them to pull down stuff that might be facilitating child uh, pedophilia or, you know, you know, instructing kids in how to make bombs. Mm -hmm. And so they have, you've got to draw a line somehow between um, protecting free speech and open debate and getting over this issue of hate speech, I mean, it's just used to club everything. So it's how do you, how do you actually draw that line though? Because I, I, of course, those two examples, nobody yeah. wants child porn online, mm -hmm. nobody wants ISIS uh, propaganda or how to build a bomb, something like that. That's why I'm so encouraged by what yeah. I understand Zuckerberg said. Surely in this country, if we can just get above the personal and the acrimony and appeal to the better angels with America's tradition of commitment to freedom, you get people to do what Mark Zuckerberg's done and said, let's sit down and talk about this properly and maturely so that we can protect robust free debate at the same time as we deny oxygen to things that are truly dangerous. Because the free exchange of ideas, even if many of them are offensive, builds freedom. There's a sharp difference. We know that. Let the sun shine in on bad ideas. Don't push them underground. Different matter altogether when you're talking about facilitating evil people who are intentionally going out to 
blow people up or, or, or to um, subject them to sexual harassment, damage. Are you hopeful? Would you say that you're, how, how would you describe your, your general outlook on life? It's a race against time. And as I would say, as I would say, see the world has changed dramatically in strategic terms as well. We're very conscious of that where we live. And so the idea that somehow or other democracies won out, the Francis Fukuyama idea, uh, end of history, uh, that will all be free, open, democratic, capitalist societies led by America is really over already and it happened very quickly. The world is now a centre of competing power uh, constellations. Uh, I remain hopeful that America, because of its pivotal role, it was an interesting uh, comment made in the Australian Parliament by Tony Blair. He said, sometimes we like to criticise our American cousins, but the reality is that no great global challenge can be managed without their full involvement. So I remain hopeful that America will discover, rediscover a higher degree of unity and purpose for the sake of humanity, if I can make that appeal to Americans, and put aside some of this terrible polarisation. I think Arthur Brooks now talks about it's not just anger. It's mm -hmm. anger plus um, uh, disgust equaling contempt, and that destroys relationships. We've got to end this business where we're tearing ourselves apart and not focusing on our common, common citizenry, uh, citizenship. And we need to do that globally as well. The leadership role is really important because, as I say, I think it is a race. Anything could go wrong strategically globally. Where, and, and in that case, people who love freedom, led by the Americans, will be critical in whether the world breaks the current stalling of the opening up of democratic freedoms that followed the falling of the Berlin Wall, or whether it retreats and more and more countries see further restrictions on freedom and the winding back of the progress that was being made democratically. And then the other side, of, you know, the foundational issue is we've got to avoid eating ourselves out from within at the same time as it's a race against making sure that we're ready to defend freedom globally. I don't think it's a lay down misere at all. Mm. But there are good people everywhere, I think, who see the dangers and are stepping up. Let's hope they're in time. That's a solid closing statement, my friend. And you've been doing this for a long time from the political side, and now you're doing it with, with all the conversations that you're having. And as you mentioned, you've had many of the people that their books are right here have been on your show. It's been a pleasure. And now we're going to flip the script. And uh, are you going to sit in this chair? <laughs> well, that'd be good we'll, fun. I'd, I'd, that'd, <laughs> we'll that see. would give me a position, of, a feeling of great power and influence. There you go. All right, we're going to flip the script in a moment, and I'll be uh, doing conversations with John. And for more on John, you can go to johnanderson.net.au. <laughs>